0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 9 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this podcast, I want to consider Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But before we get into the texts, let's just recap some of the themes we saw in John chapter 3. So in John chapter 3, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. And you may recall, as discussed in Episode 7, that Nicodemus was rich. He was powerful. He was successful. He played this central role in the religious establishment of Jesus' day. This guy was like a megachurch pastor. And so many people looked up to Nicodemus as the stellar example of like religious piety. But even though Jesus was highly respected, Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. Specifically, Jesus told him he needed to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now you might also remember that Nicodemus misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. While Jesus was trying to communicate a spiritual reality to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was only able to think in terms of earthly structures and orders, the world which he lived in, which he found in his everyday life. And we're going to see these same things resurface in today's passage when we look at John chapter 4. We're going to see this woman is going to misinterpret what Jesus says. She's going to be thinking on an earthly level when Jesus is trying to communicate on a spiritual level. He's going to bring up the themes of water and of spirit again. So let's have a look. Let's turn to John chapter 4 and we'll read from verse 1. It was about midday. So we're told that Jesus had to leave Judea. Why? Because the Pharisees were concerned about his baptizing. Remember the religious leaders came to question John in John chapter 1, John the baptizer. They came to ask him, was he the Messiah? Was he the one they were waiting for? They were concerned that he was going to mount a religious upheaval and to threaten the established religious establishment. But John said, no, 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 no. there's someone else who's coming to do that, it's not me. And so for that reason, the religious authorities left John alone. But with Jesus, they seem to be a little bit more concerned. And rather than engage in rivalry at this stage with the religious establishment, Jesus moves away and he leaves to go to his hometown of Galilee. But the geography of the situation is that Judah is in the south of Israel, Galilee's in the north, and in the middle, if Jesus wants to make his way back home, he has to pass through a place called Saqqar. Now for a pious Jew living in Jesus' day, passing through Saqqar was a necessary evil on making your way from Galilee to Judea or the reverse journey from Judea to Galilee. Perhaps a devout Jew would have hurried through this area as quickly as possible. They probably traveled through the night so they didn't have to stop, so that it was cool and they didn't get worn out and they could travel through quickly without running into any Samaritans. You see, devout Jews wanted to avoid Samaritans at all cost. So unfortunately, although they had to pass through this area, they really didn't want to. No one went to holiday in Saqqar. It was undesirable. It was like this dumping ground for all these people which no one else wanted and no one else cared for. If you've seen Thor Ragnarok, the portrayal of Sakaar is something just like that. This part of the world where all the world's lost garbage gets gathered together and no one wants to be there. They just end up there because they're not wanted anywhere else. So that's how the Jews of Jesus' day viewed Sakaar. But apparently Jesus didn't feel that way. We're told that Jesus doesn't travel by night. He travels in the middle of the day through Sakaar and he doesn't hurry through, he stops to seek refreshment at a well, which no self-respecting Jew in Jesus' day would ever do. Not only this, but Jesus also engages in conversation with a Samaritan woman. So all these things are countercultural for Jesus to do. Although the Jews have all these sort of racial walls up against Samaritans, although they don't want anything to do with them, Jesus in this passage breaks every one of them down. So as we read on in verse 7, we read that A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman, you know. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So in case we missed it, the narrator tells us, by the way, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And that's why this woman is so gobsmacked at Jesus' interaction. She doesn't expect Jesus to approach her, he doesn't expect Jesus to talk to her. All her life, devout Jews and the prevailing religious establishment have told her she is not good enough. God does not love her. They've told her that she is unclean, unholy, unaccepted by God. But now, For once, here is this man, this person who reaches out, and not only does he tell her she needs his help, he asks her for help. He seeks water from her. So this seems to turn everything on its head. Notice that in chapter 3, Nicodemus seeks Jesus out by day. In that world, Nicodemus was a respected one. You would have expected Jesus to go to Nicodemus to seek his counsel. But John turns the idea in its head. It's Nicodemus who comes and seeks Jesus out. Also, we would have expected Nicodemus to come by day, because Nicodemus is an upright man. He's got nothing to hide, right? But in John chapter 3, he sneaks under the cover of darkness because he's afraid of the religious establishment finding out that he associated with Jesus. Now see what the writer does with this Samaritan woman in the text we're looking at at the moment. Unlike Nicodemus, this Samaritan woman comes to Jesus by day. Now a lot of preachers and pastors have said, oh she comes to him by day because she's ashamed. She doesn't want to bear the reproach of the other women in the town who will tease her, who will mock her. The general idea is that most people would come to collect their water at the cooler times in the day. So either at twilight after the sun goes down or early in the morning before the sun comes up. To come in the middle of the day was the most uncomfortable, the hottest time of the day. And so to lug around, if you could imagine a couple of jerry cans full of water would be the hard work. No one wanted to do it. And so a lot of pastors and teachers will argue that the woman at the well comes to the well in the middle of the day because she wants to avoid the mocks and jeers of the other women who are also collecting water there. The idea is because she is an immoral woman, she wants to avoid the whole social situation. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a very compelling reason why the woman might otherwise come to collect water in the middle of the day, but I'll get to that a little bit later in the themes of light and darkness in the narrative, she comes in the middle of the day when everyone can see. She doesn't seek Jesus by night. And notice, she doesn't even seek Jesus, it's Jesus who comes to her. While Nicodemus seeks counsel and help from Jesus, Jesus actually seeks counsel and and sustenance from this woman. He asks her for a drink when he's thirsty. This is crazy. No self-respecting Jew would ever do this. They were the ones who had the water. They were the ones who had access to true spiritual health and life. They would never come and seek that from a Samaritan. Yet, in this story, that's exactly what Jesus does. As a Samaritan woman, this woman has been kicked to the edges She plays no role in the religious establishment of her day. No one cared what she thought and no one wanted to hear what she had to say. So could this text present a bit of a challenge for us? Let's think about the way we approach certain people and certain experts in certain fields. All too often we'll dismiss someone's opinion because we don't consider them sufficiently qualified or not part of our religious denomination or social group. Yet in this story, Jesus leaves his social convention and his social group to engage with and seek help from someone who dwells outside of his world. No one else cared what this woman had to say, but Jesus cared. No one else took the time to listen to her, but Jesus listened. Perhaps there's someone like that in our lives who we need to take more seriously and we need to listen to what they have to say. Maybe, just maybe, if we can see the world from their perspective, we might learn something. In verse 10, Jesus continued, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, have you nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep? Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and his sons, and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this idea of living water referred to running water, like a stream or a brook. It was cleaner water, and people valued it more highly. Often sacrifices in Leviticus call for living water. Another example of this idea of living water pops up in Genesis chapter 26 when Isaac and his servants redig the wells of Abraham and they discover this living water. Literally, that's the term, living water. Probably some kind of running stream or brook which wells out of the ground. And so what Jesus is saying to the woman is, oh, I've got access to a better type of water, a water which is cleaner, fresher. And not only that, if you drink from this water, you'll never thirst again. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking about a spiritual water, not an earthly woman. And like All the characters in John's Gospel so far, the woman misinterprets what Jesus is saying because she's thinking again on an earthly plane. She tells Jesus, hey, you don't even have a bucket to draw water with. How are you going to get any water? So what is this spring of living water which wells up into eternal life? Well, let's read on and see what Jesus tells us next. So in verse 16, Jesus says to the woman, Go call your husband and tell him to come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Tell me this, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now even here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people like this to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I, who am speaking to you now, am that person. So for some reason, Jesus calls the woman to go and get her husband. And this is probably playing into some cultural idea again, which Jesus has ignored up to this point, that men and women didn't talk so much together. In other words, Jesus might be feigning this cultural idea to get into the conversation. He's saying something like, go get your husband because I'm not going to discuss spiritual stuff with you. This is just another way of pointing out that the woman is marginalized. Her opinion is not accepted by Jesus' contemporaries, although as we see, Jesus is all too happy to engage with the woman herself. Now, Jesus knows that the woman doesn't have a husband, and this is what convinces her that Jesus is a prophet. Now, when many modern preachers look at this text, they say, Oh, you see, the woman is immoral. She's had five different husbands, and now she's living in a de facto relationship. Now, I doubt very much if that's what's going on in this passage. I think this is a case where modern preachers have taken their own contemporary social situation and the challenges which they have and morality in our culture and they've imposed those ideas onto this ancient text, which has nothing to do with it. In doing this, they miss the whole point. Remember, this woman is marginalized. She's disenfranchised, been kicked to the curb. She's powerless. In telling us that she's had five husbands, the author's trying to tell us, hey, this woman can't maintain her marriage. Maybe the men have been unjust to her. Maybe they've divorced her unfairly. Maybe they've died. Maybe this is a woman who's been widowed five times, in which case she is extremely unlucky. Maybe she's picked the wrong men again and been extremely unlucky and they've mistreated her. And now she lives with someone who is not her husband. Now in the ancient world, they didn't have de facto's; People lived with husbands and wives. If this woman is living with another man, it's probably not a lover. The man she's living with May have had mercy on her and taken her into his house and provided for her because, again, she's got no one to look after her. That's the best case scenario. Maybe it's a son of the woman who's taking her into his home and provide for her like a good son would. But in all likelihood, I think the most probable scenario, I think the most probable identity of the man she lives with is a slave master relationship probably some man has taken advantage of her poverty and has taken her on as a slave because so many men have had this woman. She's having trouble finding a marriage partner and in her desperation, she has accepted the role as a slave to this person. And so in all likelihood, I think that's why she's probably there in the middle of the day is because her onerous slave master has sent her out in the middle day to collect water she's been forced to do this because he wants water right now and he doesn't care if it's the hottest part of the day all he wants is water and he wants it now so i think pointing out that this woman is immoral is missing the whole point of the passage. The point of the passage and this woman's social situation is that she's poor, oppressed, disenfranchised and she has no voice. Yet, Jesus is willing to sit and converse with this woman. In verse 22, the woman raises the question of religious observance and the correct way and place to worship. And notice how Jesus redirects the conversation. He says that there's a time coming When these religious forms and orders will no longer be important, but those who worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God has no time for which mountain you worship Him on. People get concerned about that because people are thinking on the earthly plane. People are thinking, "What, what, what sort of ritual do I need to connect with God? What sort of mountain do I need? Where am I supposed to do it? What sort of temple? What sort of priest? What sort of community do I need to be a part of? But Jesus is saying, this is an earthly thing. This is how earthly people think. They think that God is like that and you have to approach God within a certain community, in a certain place, in a certain way for to connect with God. But Jesus squashes this sort of thinking and says to the woman, you're missing the point. God is spirit and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. As we read on in verse 27, we find that Just then, Jesus' disciples come back, and they marvel that he is talking with a woman. But no one said to him, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went her way into the town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then the harvest comes? Look and I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So, again, notice that the disciples misunderstand Jesus again. While they're thinking about earthly food, he's talking about spiritual food. Jesus' disciples would never have considered Samaritans potential converts, they had the wrong DNA they lived in the wrong neighbourhood, they even worshipped on the wrong mountain. Yet, Jesus challenges his disciples to open their eyes and see what God is doing in the world. While Jesus' disciples are fixated on observing the right religious forms, worshipping on the right mountain with the right structure, with the right priests, with the right rituals, God is even working outside these structures. Today, this would be like telling a fundamentalist Christian that God is working through his Buddhist or Muslim neighbors. As if that's not scandalous enough, Jesus calls us to view and to treat these people as fellow workers in the harvest. According to Jesus, the Samaritan religious order, which the disciples discounted, that same religious order has produced a crop which has reached maturity, and now it's ready for Jesus and his disciples to come and harvest it. Many people interpret this idea as a command to convert people to Christianity. But isn't that just another way of interpreting Jesus' spiritual words in an earthly way? When all is said and done, what most people consider conversion is just worshipping on a different mountain, in a different temple, in a different denomination— For most people, conversion means swapping one religious form for another. And we'll find out what Jesus means by this harvest imagery in the following verses. So let's read on. From verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't command the Samaritans to stop worshipping on Mount Gerizim, to change all their ways of worship, but rather Jesus actually stays with them for two days. Now, remember in chapter 1, John's disciples ask where he is staying, and Jesus replies, come and see. Now in John chapter 4, Jesus stays with the Samaritans. So this is huge. Jesus doesn't dwell in Judea with the central religious establishment. Jesus dwells on the outside with the poor, with the marginalized, with the despised, with the outcast. This, now we see, is where Jesus dwells. In verse 41, we're also told that many of the people there believed because of His Word. The Word, as we're told in John chapter 1, is what Jesus incarnates, God's creative wisdom. In other words, Jesus came and remained with these people in Samaria for two days, and they saw God revealed in human flesh. They were able to speak with, touch that creative wisdom which created the world in Genesis 1. And what did that look like? Well, interestingly enough, we're not told that Jesus performed any signs or any miracles when he stayed with the Samaritans. But he simply ate, he probably laughed, he spent time with these people and engaged with these people, listened to these people who no one else cared about. and. I think that is the word which the people saw in Jesus. That is God's creative wisdom breaking through into their lives. Here is this Jew, this person who has turned his back on all his cultural hang-ups to go and visit and stay and remain with these people, the despised, the poor, the outcast, where no one else would. And I think this is the reason why the Samaritans now believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Notice again, not just the Savior of the Jewish people, not just the Savior of the people who worship on, at Jerusalem on Mount Sinai, but the Savior of the whole world. So that's my take on John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.